What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another Whiskey Web and Whatnot with myself, Robert William Wagner, and my co-host, as always, Charles William Carpenter Third, mm-hmm. with our guest today, the Primogen. What's going on? Hey, howdy. Thanks for having me here. You know, I immediately recognize that you both have beautiful voices, and I'm coming in like strong Rick and Morty vibes, where you guys are definitely like, oh, hey, oh, whiskey and whoa. It's all the microphone. It's seriously, yeah, we don't sound like yeah. this in real life. Yeah, I actually sound like one of the lollipop kids in real life, but, you know, I'm able to tune that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, totally, totally. I definitely, uh, you know, I just sound like this because of the microphone. <laughs> no, uh, it's definitely not the microphone. You guys are significantly more manly than me, clearly. Mm. I don't know what happened to my voice, but I wish I had it. <laughs> well... I'll take the compliment. Yeah, okay. Yeah, or maybe we should do some Twitch streams on having a voice for radio. You do. You have a beautiful voice for radio. I didn't say you have a face for radio. I said you had a voice for radio, so you should be happy about that. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I've got a little bit of both. It's hard to say. Yeah, you never know. <laughs> I'm only 45. I could still do a pivot. <sighs> yep. You can try. So uh, for folks who don't know who you are, do you want to give a little bit of an intro into who you are and what you do? Sure. I'm probably best known for either YouTube or Twitch. Effectively, I try to make dumb things for the most part on Twitch. Recently, I'm actually trying to make something serious. I'm trying to build good technology on Twitch. For the most part, I don't build good things, right? It's just (laughs) something I just feel like doing in the moment for whatever reason. I feel like it. So yeah, that's pretty much what I'm known for is being fast at Vim having strong opinions that I tweet with very little context and dumb YouTube videos, performance YouTube videos, something like that. (laughs) I feel like though you're cycling back a little bit to the YouTube channel more and trying to massage it a little bit. It seems like some of the newer content there is like the Twitch stuff, but more focused and like, oh, okay, we're going to focus on this one thing and I'm going to walk you through how I do it and some feedback I have about it or something like that. Maybe I'm not gleaning it correctly, but... You're close. Uh, so I don't know if you've ever ran a, a, a larger channel. For those that don't know, I'm, I'm right at almost 170,000 subs on my main channel, 13,000 on my side channel, and I feel this immense pressure all the time to do good content on my main channel. And it, it is like, it is really hard. I released by far my most well-crafted, best ever, smoothest video of all time, worst video in a long time. And it just like emotionally crushes me. That's something I can spend two weeks on and just get destroyed. Whereas my side channel has kind of been like my creative outlet where I can just dump whatever I want from my Twitch stream onto it. And it's just been like outrageously successful. And kind of that's like the direction I realized is that when you start off doing anything, you start off in a very niche way, right? Like you just have to be building something around something very specific, like Vim, or this is like, I am the person that knows everything about TypeScript. You can think about like Matt Pocock. And as you grow an audience, you can no longer remain in your niche. And so I've been just having this like falling out of my niche crisis where I don't know what I'm even doing anymore. So I'm just uploading me doing nothing and it's actually been working super well. And like, it makes me feel even more meaningless because now I'm like, what the hell have I been doing for these last couple of years? Like, am I just like not knowing what I've, it's been an emotional roller coaster. this, this whole YouTube thing. Yeah, I can see that where like you start to question whether you are popular due to entertainment value or are you providing other value to people? Yeah. Maybe a little of both. And I think that at some point when you get to a certain level, you have to be entertaining. And I think I was always first entertaining 
And then I would say dumb things. And then I'd probably say something technical because, you know, I've been programming for 15 years. I've been at a fan company for 10. I have open offers many places. Like, I'm not a bad programmer. I know that. I'm maybe not a good one, but I'm definitely not a bad one. And so it's just like, I think I have something to offer that's technical and sound, but I don't think that that's what causes me to be where I'm at. I don't know. Sorry. These are just things I've been thinking about. Just like, I know this may not be entertaining for your audience, whatever, but it's like, it's like an emotional struggle being these things where you're just trying to, or at least my personal goal is that the thing I want to see is that people to stop just accepting where they're at as that's the best place to be, mm. right? Like I want them to go, okay, I'm learning how to program. I want to be able to break out a tutorial hell. Programming is not supposed to be difficult because you don't know what you're doing. Programming is supposed to be difficult because you're building something hard and it takes time and thought, but you can do it. I feel like most people get stuck on point one. They don't make it to point two. And I'm trying to like make them get to point two. And it's very important for me. Sorry, I'm all over the place. No, no. You guys can direct the conversation. No, no, it's fine. That's okay. We're kind of like our main podcast is like your side channel. You know, we have a very loose format and it's really just arbitrage for free whiskey anyway. So, you know, Love it. different things that we <laughs> glean along the way are entertaining. And they do make a couple of points there that I think we'll come back to while we start to move forward a little bit into some of the hot takes, because you were mentioning you like sometimes like to post either videos or things on Twitter to like spark controversy, whether, whether you mean it or not. So we'll talk about some of those in a second, but I'll dive into the whiskey. You did get it, right? You got a bonus too. I did get it. And I have a very special cup I have brought. May I show you my cup? Absolutely. You can see it. I don't think the people at home can see it, but it says victory on one side. And it has a chiseled in AK on the other side. Do you know what this is? Controversial in, in itself, but no, I don't. <laughs> it is from the movie set of Netflix's very first movie we ever produced, Beast of No Nation. Hmm. And so all the people that worked either on the website of things or on the show, there was this as one of the many things that came out of it. And so I helped work a little bit on the show. And so I got a little nice little chiseled cup. And so it's a, it's a fun little edged in whiskey cup. That's from Netflix, uh, 2016, I think. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's funny. I would think longer ago, really, like their first produced thing. But uh, yeah, that's pretty cool. It was first produced movie. Yes, yes. Our first produced thing was Lilyhammer. Nobody remembers that. 2015, mm. 2015. I just looked it up right now. October 16th, 2015. So I wasn't far off. Yeah. I guess that's seven, eight, almost eight years ago. Yeah. So interesting. Well, I don't, I think, I don't even know what mine is. Oh, I think this came with some kind of kit. But it's a Glencarn, pretty traditional, like, whiskey-tasting thing. Oh, yeah. And then we've got this thingy, the old Nelson Brothers. So this is a Nelson Brothers Reserve bourbon, yes. Ooh. 107.8 proof, so it's got a little heat to it. Can't find out the math spill nor the age statement, because they're super secret, at least. But uh, all bourbons must be four years minimally aged by law. This is actually a bourbon out of Tennessee and Robbie and I have been to the distillery there called the Greenbrier Distillery. Yeah. I was like, oh, I want to try one of their things. I thought you couldn't have a bourbon if it's not from Kentucky. Am I wrong on that? Well, that is incorrect. Like it's the only federally regulated spirit. It's also like organic in that sense. And so you can't artificially flavor it or anything like that, but there's no bounds in terms of where it can be created. So it has to be like 51% corn. It has to go into the barrels at a certain proof. It can be artificially flavored for a year minimum. All those kinds of things are the laws, but it doesn't have to be in Kentucky. So 
I thought it was like, but isn't that like the phrase, like proper bourbon is from Kentucky? Or am I just making that up? I mean, as someone from Kentucky, yes, we have a little pride, but that's really all it is. Now, if they try to call it like Kentucky straight bourbon, obviously it should be from Kentucky and not Tennessee. But the only thing that makes Jack Daniels not bourbon, because it has the same mash bill that fits all of that, is that when they filter it, they filter it through maple flavored charcoal. So... No, not bourbon anymore. Disgusting. That's what I say. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Says the man with an AK cup. (laughs) Hey, it's a sweet cup. Okay. You know what? I hope it's still a good day, even though you had to use your AK. So I think it's going to be. Smells good. good. Are we taking our drinks now? Yeah, we can do whatever. Yeah. We're evaluating. Yeah. I do a little smelling first, try to glean something. I'm mimicking you guys. (laughs) I'm not whiskey versed, if you will. I poured a really big drink. I realized that I, I went like almost two fingers on this one. I'm going to have to slow down. Perfect. I think this is going to get exciting. This is probably why you're more productive than I am, though. Mm-hmm. So I smell some steamed green beans. What? I don't know if you're getting that. <laughs> I had a little vanilla. I don't know what you put on your green beans. Some leather as well. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Rich mahogany. I smell a light alcohol scent mm-hmm. that's what i was smelling <laughs> yeah. it's picking up a slight burn in the nose Oof, it's got a little burn on the tongue too this one's hot yeah for sure yeah 107 um yeah trying to glean a little more out of this i'm getting some orange rind i'm getting a little vanilla in the beginning and i'm getting the hell burn out of my tongue as longer it stays so <laughs> yeah this one's spicy mm-hmm. Oof. do you guys ever make uh, mixed drinks with these are you guys uh, old-fashioned I do like an old fashioned. Okay. Not on the show, but personally, yes. Old fashioned would be one of my go tos. I like a Boulevardier. I don't know, especially in the winter for some reason. So that, you know, has um, Amaro's in it and sweet vermouth. I don't know. I don't make a ton of other ones. Are you a cocktail connoisseur? I wish I was. Every time I see someone make cocktails and talk about the origin and these stories, I'm like, I could totally do that. But then, you know, I also don't want to have to drink that many cocktails to get to this point of being good at it. Right. What'd you do for the last two years? I was hammered. What'd you do? Yeah. <laughs> and I think they were delicious. I don't remember. Yeah. You want to try one that I think was a good time? Yeah. You did invite people over frequently so you don't have to drink them all yourself. This is true. That's actually a good idea. Speed run cocktail tasting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. This almost has like a, an orangey... Creme brulee kind of thing for me. A little burn, sugar, a little, little leathery on the finish. Getting a little apple. Mm. We usually make this stuff up. Okay. Yeah. Also, I watch your channel. I know you listen to this podcast like religiously, <laughs> but I'll, I'll repeat for everyone else. So we do the very stringent rating scale, one to eight tentacles. We use tentacles because our agency's logo is an octopi-like character. So one being horrible, eight being like amazing, drink it every day for average. And then you can kind of askew anywhere in between for you and just kind of compare it to like things you've had already. Do you like it better? Do you Mm -hmm. like it worse? Do you, you know, we categorize it around like bourbons and whatever else, but we also like do this every week. So we've had way too much liquor for this year already. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'll let Robin go first. He can set a tone for you. Okay. I'm going to give this one a seven, I think. Mm. Can't really say why, but I like it. Hmm. I don't know. Should I just call you Prime? You can call me Prime. Prime's good. Yeah, okay. So Prime, yeah, if you would like to. All right, so I've only had a few whiskeys in my life, right? I've had your bottom shelf ones, or at least what I consider bottom shelf, your Jack Daniels. I've never really enjoyed that. 
And then I have with me at my house, I have a few bottles of Blattens. There's a guy locally that every single time he gets a shipment and he goes, do you want Buffalo Trace or Blattens? And as a smart individual, I mm-hmm. always buy at least one just because you got to always have them on yeah. available. Oh, yeah. Even though now I currently have 10 years worth of whiskey, I'm still going to just keep buying them because they're very, very good. Yeah. And Blattens, I think, is really smooth. It's easy to drink. It has, you know, but it's not nearly as flavorful as this one. This one has a lot of flavor. It definitely hits the tongue harder. My tongue already feels almost like a little sensitive from drinking it. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I don't know if I could drink a lot of this because I think it's going to give me heartburn. <laughs> it's like a really intense drink. And so I think that if I got into whiskeys more, this would probably be a lot higher rating. But since I'm not super into it and this is just really intense for my palate, I'd put this at like a five. Yeah, that's above average. That's all right. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. It might be very flavorable, but all of the intensity around those flavors might kind of turn you off as a regular sipper. Or, and if you, maybe if you were going to make cocktails with this high heat and you were adding other like sweet like ingredients, yeah, then it would temper some of that for you too. So still give you some yeah. of the flavor without like so much spice and heat to it. Yeah, this seems like a very good one to mix. Yeah, I could definitely see that. Or even just a few drops of water or an ice cube. That's another way to kind of curb some of that. I was actually going to go get some ice cubes for our next one because I, I love That's fair. ice cubes with these. Yeah, we can make that work. <laughs> Any pauses or snafus get edited anyway, so it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I'm about a six and a half on this one. I think it's pretty flavorful. I think I'm getting kind of a punch in the face, so maybe it'll open up and evolve for me. But for now, it's like, this is good. It's pleasant for a bourbon and not too sweet. So yeah, I'm going to go six and a half. Cool. All right. So from the man who has so many opinions, let's start with something that I haven't seen go too crazy on Twitter, get rebase or get merge. Okay. So uh, I have pretty strict policies around this. So first I should probably talk about what do I work on? I work in a old legacy also modern C++ code base that has existed longer than I've been at Netflix. I've been at Netflix for a decade. We have something like, I don't know, 500,000 commits to the code base. Very, very large, right? Takes a long time to download if you're doing the full history and all that. And so for me personally, I think the best way to use Git is that you take your set of commits, you commit frequently, put little squash me, whatever things. You take your commit once you feel like that's the item, get it into a singular commit, good, nice, like tagline exactly what you worked on, you know, worked on widgets, change this thing, right? So that way, when I need to just go find the commits associated with widgets, I can go whoop, widget being like a domino. That's what we call my Netflix. So I do that. And then I rebase that change on top of the current release train that is being worked or developed on. Because again, remember, we're a television product. That means every, you know, X times a year, we actually have like hard cuts in our C++. Mm. And therefore, all changes need you know, to pretty much always go forward and only critical things need to go back. And it's not like we can just ask our television partners to go deploy some C++ to their, to the field, right? So it's like, it's a very complicated process. So mine comes from, I think, a need of complication and strictness. And so I always try to be very strict when it comes to Netflix stuff. Personally, I just don't like having more commits in a code base Sometimes when I'm looking for a bug, especially on a smaller project, I know like in my head, oh, it's probably right here. Let me look at this change set really quickly. I can kind of just get log, look at the last 10, see, okay, did, 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 did. But the more merges, the more that kind of stuff, I feel like it just clouds things up a little bit. I don't really like it. I like just kind of a clean thing. And then on like a philosophical level, when you merge something in, I feel like your change, your atomic change, what you've considered the thing that you built, I really think that it should rest on top 
because whatever's below it has been tested, approved, and stamped to go out. Your change fundamentally has not had that. And so interweaving it into the commit history kind of feels almost unclean to me, if you will. And then lastly, reverting or cherry picking is super complicated if you don't keep things clean and squashed. And so for me, it just seems to make most sense to always just rebase, keep it simple when I need to cherry commit or cherry pick, which is already a sign you're in a bad place to begin with. Yeah. But it's happened. I think we've all been there where we had to just cherry pick something out. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of like my philosophy, which is just comes from working on a team with 12 people in a large code base that has existed for over a decade. And so I try to follow that as the best I can. I think that's all very reasonable. Yeah. And I think strict over less strict for the most part, unless it's like a personal project, a very small thing is kind of a good principle to use in your career in general, because you never know where you're going to land and what kind of projects you'll Mm -hmm. come into or even start yourself. And so like, why not have a base set of principles and not have the context change too much? Yeah. Yeah. And I find that no one is upset if you rebase your changes and commit on top, right? No one's going to argue you. If you don't add any merge commits, you don't do any of that. And you have a single little commits that you're throwing in. They're fairly atomic and they're very nice. Nobody argues that, but Take the inverse, you got yourself a little bit of a problem. You're going to have some things you're going to be challenged on. You could have coworkers upset. So I just tend to operate in a way that causes the least disturbance to the ecosystem. Yeah, that's a good citizen. That's what that is. I agree with that. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Hey, good citizen. Can I ask you guys a question? Sure, sure. You're in a code base and there's two definitions of a good citizen here. The first one in which is probably the one we all use is that a good citizen does what the other people effectively do. You follow the style guidelines, you do everything that, you know, Mm -hmm. you want to make code such that it looks as if, if someone was perusing the code, they couldn't tell your spot from somebody else's, right? You've done a good job. When and how do you decide not to be a good citizen? Mm -hmm. Interesting. Sorry, when you say the good citizen thing, what I realize is that all good citizens pave a road to hell if your code base is starting to go down because you keep mimicking each other in worse and worse practices. Yeah, I tend to just come in and disagree with everything as much as I can. So like we have with the Git rebase stuff, I've been trying to force everyone to squash and merge PRs. Like I get that sometimes that's not the best thing to do because maybe you do actually want three commits or something that are like atomic commits. But overall, it's like using prettier to me. It's like if we all do it, it's always the same. It might not be your favorite because prettier has opinions and whatever too. But like that is the best thing to use, in my opinion. So like I think doing things like that and forcing people to do things the cleanest way, whether everyone likes it or not, is like good for people. But it can also, I guess, cause a lot of uh, problems if everyone hates the thing you're trying to introduce. Right, exactly. So I was going to say I have a lot of my career that has been in like a leadership perspective. So I have the idea of coming in to like, If there's a challenge coming up, I'm not personally going to become the bad citizen. I'm going to like start to rally around a discussion of a potential pivot in whatever the rules of engagement are, because a problem has started to show itself. And so instead of like saying this problem surfaced, I know the better way. And then evangelizing a forced like path through that, I'm instead going to say we all live here, right? This is our home. You know, it looks like some walls are falling down in our home. So let's talk about how we're going to deal with getting the foundation solid again and then go down a path, which is more time consuming. So, you know, there's some trade-offs to that. But I'm never like a guns a-blazing kind of fellow, unlike Robbie, it sounds like. Yeah, I'm bad cop. Yeah. 
I am good cop <laughs> and I'm like, I want to be your friend and we all have to live together. So let's figure out a solution here. So at what point do you know to pull that trigger? Because I always find that, or at least one thing I find difficult is that there can be established pattern in code base. So I'm not even talking about style, right? Like yeah. say using classes or only using functions or this or that, right? Whatever soup du jour is the thing. Inevitably, all decisions turn bad over a period of time. Why? Because we are using an imperfect language to describe a perfect set of logic, blah, blah, blah. All the philosophical talk we could throw on top of it. And we're imperfect people trying to describe something that demands perfection, right? And so it's like, at what point do you try to break it and start something new? And then even harder, how do you make that change happen when someone new comes to the code base and now they have, do I take the code pattern and how they're doing things from search or should I take it from over here and how they do it from member? Mm, that's an interesting thing. Well, I think conversely, so there's one thing is that the speed of change has accelerated massively over yeah. the last like five years or so. So I think that like the point you initially make where all decisions at some point kind of end up being wrong and then you have to take a look at things and how does it rear its ugly head, right? Either like someone sees something and they raise their hand or you have a massive error that makes it into an environment and freaks people out or something it does make it to production. You got like a series of hot fixes. And then in your like, you know, retrospective around that, you say, we fucked up, where are we gonna go with this? But I think right now stuff is changing so fast that I don't know that things that frequently get to that point. There's a lot of architectural pivots, framework pivots, language pivots, you know, every web tool getting rewritten in Rust, 64 new new frameworks. Let's go Rust. <laughs> I know. I mean, to a degree, I loved, and I think you were doing it kind of tongue in cheek to Kent, but like Kent was just like TypeScript's here to stay, Yeah, like it or not, this is the thing. And you're like, Rust is here to stay. We're all going to do this. And uh, <laughs> I don't think you're necessarily wrong. Like I am very intrigued by Rust and that it, the potential of web components delivering on that promise from oh to more than 10 years ago. Yeah. So the promise of WASM. Yeah. It's going to be there. This is the year of WASM. And then it's like next year, this is the year of WASM. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You can even write JavaScript that compiles over like, I don't know what's stopping you. So for those that don't know, the tweet uh, effectively went like, uh, unless if I'm teaching the fundamentals of JavaScript, I'll be using TypeScript from here on forward. Let's just face it, TypeScript 1. I believe I've effectively nailed it. There's no going back. Just get used to it. You're going to be using it. Yeah. A big thing, I think this is like a Twitch thing. And I think this likely comes across offended. I think he didn't really like it, but it's like a very Twitch thing to do, which is just copy paste. Mm -hmm. When someone says something, mm -hmm. you just copy it. You just paste it. You just say the same thing. And all of a sudden you'll see like a chat that will just take over as just like the same thing being said by 15 people because one person said something pretty serious. Yeah. And so everybody else is like, meme, meme, meme. And so of course <laughs> I just copy and paste it and just replace the word TypeScript with Rust because I'm like, oh, funny, God for Rust and Seth, yeah. right? Because it makes no sense. Like, why would I be teaching JavaScript fundamentals, let alone using Rust all the time? Like, both those things don't even make any sense said together. But it actually, it accidentally blew up. Like, I didn't even mean it for it to blow up, but it is a good point, which is the web in the next three years is going to actually arrive at like a crossroad where more than one thing can happen, mm -hmm. right? We can all get a chance to use something that maybe is a little less traditional, if you consider JavaScript traditional, like in the sense that Go, I think, will be a real viable option because how much do you want to bet that WebAssembly is going to start shipping or at least V8 will start shipping a its own garbage collection, you know, memory, what uh, malloc or whatever you call that thing. 
I'm trying to think of the right word. I, I've, the whiskey has made my words go away. <laughs> Already. <laughs> I know. Can you believe? I'm a huge lightweight. And so it's like once those things start happening, all of a sudden it just opens the door for everything to execute. And so the next big revolution's coming. It's just like, what is it going to be? And I think Rust plays a very like exciting future because it's just so different. Yeah, I can definitely agree with that. And I think that like there's already a hard look at what is the architecture that creates the web? And it's not so singular as it had kind of evolved back into like the big joke is like, actually PHP wasn't so bad anymore. Yeah. You can web render or you can server render everything. So now we can do it again. That's Astro. Like that's Fred. Fred was like, Mm -hmm. it's actually not bad. Yeah. And it really isn't bad. I think that the promise of interactivity and JavaScript and Ajax requests and all those things that kind of came about in 2011, 2012, it just made everything really hard And it's now like we have like two worlds that exist. We have this kind of like simplified, more simple SSR model. And then this really complex one that everyone is like, it's still inventing terms and things like, I don't even know what an island is currently. (laughs) I know that there's islands and they exist. And I'm very confused by this term, but nonetheless, like there's these, there's just so much happening for somebody to get up to speed. It just seems like, I don't even know how I do web programming at this point. Like if I had to start now, Mm. the deficit that I would be in is just enormous. Well, you would learn React in the way that like people learned jQuery to work on the web years ago. It's never like vanilla JavaScript, which is interesting. So it always like turns out that like demands in the hiring market end up being a learning path because CS programs lag behind in real world training, I think. And then your boot camps or, you know, whatever skill acclimation paths that happen when you first get started. I mean, for me, when I first got started, I was slicing Photoshop files and putting things into tables for layout. And so like the good days. Yeah. Yeah. Dreamweaver (laughs) was a thing, which is funny because I was watching a stream with uh, Jason Langstrom and he was somebody mentioned Dreamweaver and he was like, does that still exist? It does. It still exists. So somebody's doing that right now in some way, shape or form. NetBeans still exists. It doesn't mean it's like a good idea to use it. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> For somebody is just sticking around and paying that licensing fee every year just magically. Can we jump on yet another really hot topic? Yeah, absolutely. Because you said that uh, universities aren't producing people that are like really up to speed for work environments. I'd like to make a counter argument. Mm -hmm. I think they actually produce people better equipped for the real world than anything we have today. Hmm. Okay. I can say that there's probably a slight misnomer in that statement for me. I think that it depends on the job. And I think that, I mean, demand has for the web in marketing departments, for example, has existed for many, many years. And that was like an entryway if you weren't like working in .NET, doing e-com setup, things like that, right? So obviously CS programs are setting you up to work for a bank. They're setting you up to work in a FANG environment or what is it now? It's a MANG? Anyway. Manga. Yeah. Yeah, where you really need to do like serious algorithms and computation and stuff, right? Not like edit a WordPress theme. So I guess that I think in terms of like what the skill set is for a lot of job, like common jobs out in the marketplace and not like SaaS products necessarily, things like that. Like there's rather than like highly specialized, like actual programming and really just like web work. So that was my, my tie into things like jQuery, but now jQuery is React and a lot of the React is UI. Yeah, I can buy that. 
So in that sense, computer science programs aren't necessarily getting people ready for that either. Although I hear they're starting to teach React as like the gateway in a bunch. Ooh, that's sad. Mm -hmm. Just in time for it to die. What about you, Robbie? (laughs) Yeah, I think a traditional degree prepares you for taking on challenges of whatever sort. So it's like, you know, if you can prove you get through college, then it's like you can probably debug stuff. You can probably find your way through different languages or whatever. But there's a huge lack, like Chuck was saying, in like teaching the things you actually need for like your job. But it teaches you how to learn those things. So you should be able to learn on the job, provided they're flexible and aren't only hiring like senior in a X framework devs. Yeah. I mean, because at the end of the day, learning HTML, learning plain CSS, learning vanilla JavaScript sets you up into why these tools help you, you know, and they accelerate through like, oh, here's the sugar that helps me get there faster. And I understand like what this API provides. I understand these utility classes solve this problem on a different scale. Like just walking in and knowing Tailwind is like pretty challenging because when you go to another project and they use Material UI or a BEM framework or something else, then you're going to be like, what does this mean? So here's my counter to all this, which is the point of university isn't to prepare you for a practical job in the moment at a design studio, at a marketing place, whatever you want. It is to teach you what a function does and why a function works the way it does Mm -hmm. so that no matter what framework you're using, you can guess and understand how it works. Therefore, you can debug and root a problem significantly faster. The reason why I can understand closures and those things when I first learned JavaScript really like in a night or in a uh, a very technical sense is because I had to build a compiler that used uh, IL, intermediate language, which is Microsoft's kind of LLVM before LLVM. Mm. And there was no such thing as closures. You had to generate closures by programming in the assembly to actually make hidden functions with variables, think groovy, and kind of like actually create those things. And so when I was using the web or using a more loosey-goose language that didn't have this concept of closures because I came from like Java 1.5. There's no closures. Like it was, it's not how the world worked back then. And it was very simple because I'm like, oh, I know exactly what's happening and I know why it's happening. And I understand why this for loop, which is relying on I, but I is changing and the function's failing. I understand why, because I have written this, like I understand the fundamental concept for what's happening here, which I think makes all forms of learning and acceleration a hundred times easier. You may start further behind, but it's kind of like, do you want to start at the starting line and go 10 miles an hour? Or do you want to start a hundred yards back and go 20 miles an hour? I want to choose the 20 mile an hour because after a mile, I'm going to be way ahead. I'm going to be crushing. And so that's kind of like my main argument for it. And I understand why people can't do it. I, you know, all the practical reasons, blah, 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 blah. But I, I do think that as a web in general, we are really undervaluing Like, why do languages look the way they look? Why do we use the things we use? Like, what is type discrimination? Why does it work? How does pattern matching work? Have you, like, thought about these things in a more deeper level? Mm -hmm. And it makes a lot of sense once you understand memory and layout and why JavaScript behaves the way it does. All of a sudden, it becomes very clear and beautiful. So, and now I'm going to counterpoint your counterpoint, which in that I agree with everything that you just said, except for... I don't think you have to get it from university. Agreed. I think that there can be a more technical training program that focuses in, mm-hmm. on these things and makes it a, an important part of like initial training. And perhaps like if you're in an accelerator program, like 
that's not where the money is. Like I need to get you out and in a job in yeah. 12 weeks yeah. or 18 weeks or whatever else. But like, yeah, coming in and understanding programming fundamentals, I think is an important part of that. And then it helps you find answers so that if you don't know whatever framework, you can walk in and go through it and understand why it's doing some certain things and how that helps you. Yeah. I love that answer and I really want it to be true. Yeah. But practically speaking, like who's going to spend three months learning computational theory? Yeah. It's just so they then in three months, they can now finally start doing their initial compiler approach. Mm. Right. Like it's yeah. <laughs> it's an emotionally hard, you know, commitment to mm -hmm. make. And the most impactful class I've ever had was compilers. That thing has benefited me more than any other class in the last 15 years and is by far the most useless class I have ever taken. <laughs> you know, so, yeah, so it's, it's kind of interesting like dichotomy that ends up happening, which is like, here's a completely useless class that ends up being the most useful foundational stuff. I don't build compilers. I built one compiler professionally, just one. How could you turn that into a Pluralsight course and make it engaging, I wonder? It is a good question, which is how do you make this into something that people can practically use? Because let's just face it, you don't need to know pigeonhole theorem. You don't need to, need to know any of these things. You don't even know what a pushdown automata is, right? You don't have to know those things to start writing compilers. So there is some practical application to it that you can skip over the theoretics. Yeah, yeah. it would be interesting because I think there's a gaping hole in, in some of those things in terms of like things that you can self-learn. Because I'm self-taught, mm -hmm. you know, I didn't take computer science yeah. in college. I was supposed to be an architect, damn it. The hardest degree, I think, to earn is architecture. Right. And honestly, it's a very saturated market, second to like lawyers. So it's really hard to actually be successful in that and do exciting projects. Not everybody gets to be Frank Geary, you know. Yeah. It's kind of sad because I feel like architecture is by far... Like, A, though, just the hardest degree. The kids that had to work the hardest, longest hours were always architects. They're always just, just nonstop. But B, it's just like, yeah, it's great that you got this degree, but that one architect just produced five plans that has sold to like a half million houses. Sorry, there's only going to be like four million houses, you know, built this year. And, you know, 20% yeah. <laughs> of them just went out the door to one person. Right. And you're just like, shit. Yeah. <laughs> or sorry, <laughs> darn it. <laughs> no. okay, can I curse on this if I actually? Oh, curse? absolutely. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I dropped the F-bomb earlier. But... Okay. I only curse to convey an emotion. I don't curse to convey a word that I should have used. Mm. So you'll never hear me say like, oh, I'm trying to think like, you know, like, what's that shit? All, you know, people are like, oh, you know, what the fuck is that? Right. It's just like, no, you're you're ruining the thing. Like, you're not describing what you're trying to say. You're not describing your feeling. You're only just saying how it feels like you got to get smarter with your language. Mm. Sorry, that's like a passion point of mine is we should <laughs> use words that convey meaning as best we can. Yeah, I don't know. Fuck has a lot of different connotations and meanings oh, yeah. based on the emphasis and very versatile. <laughs> yeah, I understand that there definitely can be some lazy use, right? Because there's some people who don't like comedians that use profanity. And then I think there are comedians that use profanity that enhances yeah. the subject. Like George Carlin is a master yeah. of combining that street language and very intelligent speak. So yeah, I'm totally on that team. Like, so when growing up, my two favorite comedians were Brian Regan and Dave Chappelle. Oh, yeah. Right. Like they're about as far on the spectrum from each other as you could possibly get. But that was like my 2005 era was walking on the moon and the Chappelle show. So I was like, those were like yeah. the formative years of my life. And so I like I just don't like it when it replaces thought, mm. but when it is an emphasize, like you have to. 
I don't know. Or it's an attention grab or yeah. 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 I don't like using it for shock. That's weak. Oh. I think using it to make somebody feel what you're thinking. Yes. That's good. Like it's good. Yeah. Yeah. For emphasis, I think it's kind of like get your attention. Yeah. Now we're going down this journey. Mm-hmm. But in Deadwood, I mean, everybody uses polite language. I figured like there's a lot of cursing and like leather chaps or something, but not like motorcycle chaps, <laughs> like horse chaps. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. You've nailed it. A lot of like uh, shaint, <laughs> like all the great words, hither to, thither to. Mm. Oh my. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy, come here. Come thither to, boy. And I'm like, oh, here I come. <laughs> so before I forget, actually, one of our colleagues was, uh, he had a question for you too. And I was like, I want to make sure I squeeze it in. And we talked a little bit about like other things that you could teach or whatever. And he said, any plans for future longer format courses? Like the one you did for front end masters comparing TSGO and Rust. Yeah. So actually on first off, for those that don't know, yeah, I did like this polyglot course. I think it's too much, too quick. I can operate within three languages fairly easily. And I think that that probably was maybe too quick for a the format. So on March 10th, I will be doing a, another front end masters, just Rust for TypeScript devs. So I'm just trying to take concepts from TypeScript and map it over to Rust. So that way you can understand like, you know, what are unions in TypeScript? This is a union. How do you represent a union in Rust? Okay, this is a class. How does a class work in Rust? This is function. This is functional programming. And then, of course, obviously, dispel the borrow checker, list versus vector, all those kind of fun things. But yeah, I do a little bit of long, uh, long form content. So this is like another one of these emotionally hard parts for me. It's that there's this thing that I really want is that I really want to be able to work full time in content. But I also recognize that if you're not working in the real world, you become divorced and you start just being wrong about things. You're no longer operating in reality. And so I don't want to quit my job, but I do want to quit my job, if you understand that. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things is that if you quit your job, you have to be able to make a living. And obviously, I have a lot of knowledge of TypeScript. I would say that I'm not Matt Pocock slash trash dev level of TypeScript knowledge, but I'm not far from that. And I also know a lot about Rust, right? I'm not faster than Lime smart, but I am fairly smart at Rust. And I know I could teach a really good, solid course and sell it by myself. And I could make a lot of money and I could go out and do those kind of things. But at the same time, like, I don't want to be one of those influencers that have a course. You know what I mean? Mm. Like every person that does influencing does ads. If you've watched all my products, I've had two ad placements in the entirety of hundreds of videos and all that. Like, that's it. And it's because I really want the content itself to be good. And I feel like people lose some of their confidence when they see that. I don't want to be another tech lead. I don't want to be another guy that sells out and then everybody hates, right? I want to end this like Seinfeld where I go, well, hey, we're at the peak, but I'm done here, everybody. Mm. Take care. I hope you guys all do good. And just like end in a good, positive way. And so that's one of the things I see. And so I struggle with that question. I think about it a lot. I've talked to my wife. I've talked to people who do it for a living. And I've really tried to figure out like what's the best way to do it. And it's super difficult. There you go. Yeah. I mean, if you want to maintain that balance, I think that is pretty challenging because at the end of the day, you, everybody has bills to pay, right? Yeah. And sometimes you have to make sacrifices for that. So if you have a stable income, then obviously you can make choices that are personally feel good to you without any loss. If there's a gain, gravy. If not, like, yeah, that's totally fine as well. So yeah, I, I get that. That's interesting. 
Yeah, one of the hard parts about that is that for me to maintain my current lifestyle, meaning that every day I stream on Twitch for a couple hours, every day I do a bunch of stuff, I think about YouTube, for me to be able to maintain that, I wake up at 5.30 no matter what, and I usually wake up at 5, but lately I've been doing 5.30 recently, health issue, all that with my wife, had to kind of recover from that, totally threw off the sleep schedule. So I'm like working my way back. So two nights ago, my daughter was up until 1 a.m. There's nothing I could do about it. She's not even two years old. There's just, Mm. that's how it works. And so I'm still waking up every day at 5.30 to maintain the schedule. And it's just like the difficulty of making it so that it doesn't feel like it's selling is really hard. And most people don't know what it takes to actually do that. Yeah, a lot of people make it sound really easy. Like uh, if you listen to Syntax, Wes Boss is always like, yeah, I record a video every day. And like, it's just super easy to do. And like, there's tons of time to do it. Everyone should record a video per day. And it's like, um... No, sir. Like, right. I do not have time for a video every day. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I have two small kids. I, uh, yeah. you know, day job work across multiple clients and then doing this once a week is one thing, but like every single day, keeping it interesting and fresh, it's just challenging for me. And maybe that's just, you know, mm-hmm. me versus Wes. But yeah, I think that if like, marketing yourself and having a brand. And I'm not saying that's his like sole motivation or anything. Like maybe it's just a different beast, but like that I think is draining to a degree, right? Like it's hard. If it's not fun, then what is it then? And if it's not your primary source of income and not fun, then what are you doing? I think the big thing that that to be successful at this longer than a year or longer than two years or longer than three years, there's a couple different axes you have to kind of think on. And one, growth is fun, right? No matter what somebody says, you know, you'll, you'll always hear content creators being like, oh, I just do it because I love to do it, right? And it's just like, the reality is, is that if you start growing, it's fun in of itself. You're like, wow, like, like two years ago, I had 100 people watch me on Twitch. When I signed off, I was at 1,200 people watch me on Twitch. It feels fun to have that kind of stuff, right? No matter you know how you feel about it, it's fun to have growth. But that only lasts for so long. You can't infinitely grow. So what's the part that gets you through the, you know, the not growing seasons, right? Because there was also three years that I was less than 100. I was 30 people for a year, then 40, then 50, then all of a sudden 100, then then it just took off like a rocket. But nonetheless, it's like you have to be able to have fun. And so I, I bet you Wes likes and loves that, right? right? He likes being able to investigate these things. And so he may not make videos if he were doing it by himself, if he is in a closed loop by himself, he'd probably just investigate those things, laugh at it, have it in his knowledge, talk about it with people. But since we live in a world where that's happened and he's successful at it, he gets to do both, which I think is really where, you know, the glory of it all is, is that if you can grow or be big and then also love what you do, you're like excited about the thing for the sake of the thing. I think it works really, really well. And even if you have to get up every day at 530 and go to bed when hopefully you can go to bed every day at nine, but doesn't work that way. I was going to say, good for you. <laughs> My kids go to bed at eight and, uh, you know, and you sometimes have, oh, they want to get up a few more times or whatever else. Yeah. And then we're like, we just want an hour or so to ourselves. A lot of times that's a time to like watch a show or spend a little time with my wife and then 10, I can usually get 10 Yeah. and then I'm back up at six. So yeah. the cadence isn't completely off, but yeah, I, I feel that you need some consistency to sort of keep going and then things get thrown in there every once in a while. Yeah. Yeah. I think the hardest part is uh, dealing with a slowdown. Like, I, I don't know how you guys feel about your numbers and all that kind of stuff. Cause, you know, I, I'm sure you guys run it. You've been running this for how long now? A little over a year, right? Yeah. Year and a half, something like that. Yeah. I bet you there's been inevitable times where it's, it's just slower than it's been faster. And like, 
you know, no matter how much you, you don't want it to be true, it hurts a little bit. It always does hurt a little bit. You know, you, you want to be like, I'm making a thing that I'm pouring my heart into. I hope people like. And then when people don't watch it, you're like, oh, like that hurts. <laughs> like it hurts right here because it's it's an extension of who I am right. in some sense. And that yeah. hurts a little bit. I get that too. Yeah, that was a say, like you, you do have a, an identity that people know, you know, yes, you work at Netflix, but like how many people are like, oh yeah, I heard you work at Netflix. Like, no, they're not talking yeah. about that. They're talking about the other aspects. I don't know. I choose the ostrich syndrome. And so I just put my head in the sand and I don't know what's happening. I just show up and <laughs> sometimes ask people personally to be on this. And I don't, and I pick the whiskeys sometimes with Robbie, like yeah. I'm the shipper. I have a. Yeah. It's more about the whiskey and just chilling. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I try to keep it there. Robbie's a little bit more attuned yeah. to those metrics. And, and I'm like, I don't know. Yeah. I watch the numbers. Yeah. It's still a real <laughs> thing, right? No matter how, yeah. you, how you feel about it, it's a real thing. And this goes, to, I mean, this really can apply to any part in life, right? If you work really hard at a job and you're hoping for a good pay raise, recognition, a better title, whatever, and it doesn't happen, you know, it hurts because in some sense, what you've been pouring into feels invalidated, yeah. right? And so this is a, a universal feeling anyone can understand. It's just that most people's understanding of it is in vague titles, the difference between senior and staff or from senior to lead or whatever you want to say. Whereas yours is like an actual number, right? You're like, yeah. it's the fifth hour in and it's not performing as well statistically. You know, like it, it, it just hurts in a more specific level. <laughs> we lose 50 subscribers. We're like, what did we do? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's that AK cup. You know, they just did not like that it. That was it. Yeah. That's, uh, <laughs> or we'll really spike in the Midwest. I don't know. It's hard to say. Yeah. Yeah. It's always random and weird. Like you'll get a bunch of people from some random area or like an episode that we didn't think was that good does way better than others. And it's like, what is going on? I don't understand. <laughs> so the weirdest thing happens. And I, I have this one video that I, I look back on as like the weirdest thing ever. I believe I called it why I used Vim. And that's it. I turned on the camera and recorded a single take all the way through. My editor lightly edited it. It's six minutes long. I didn't think it'd do anything. It is Overall, the second best performing or the first best performing video of all time, 6,000 subscribers added to the YouTube channel just from that one video alone. And it's like the box art is like my green background with me going <laughs> like, that's it. Like, that is it. And somehow that's the best one. Like, it blows my mind sometimes, like what people pick up on. And it just shows like it's so hard to predict these things. Mm -hmm. I do think that Vim is an interesting subject. I think it's like a morbid curiosity for tons of developers, particularly on the web. I know that it has been on like a list for me to like learn proficiency in for probably 50, but ten, at least 10 years. Cause I can remember when I was at National Geographic and I had a colleague broke his wrist and he all of a sudden couldn't like had to one hand stuff. And he's like, how do I figure this out? He spent two days, learned Vim and became like the fastest developer on our team. And I was like, wow, that seems worthwhile, but I'm gonna put that over here for now. You know, it's odd. Because this applies to all things in life, right? Like if there's something that could immediately benefit you, but it's hard, you're like, yeah, I'll just do that later. Yeah. <laughs> I ain't got time for that. Low hanging fruit first, low hanging fruit. There's definitely that. I mean, the thing is that sometimes they're not even hard. Like just imagine the situation in which you are, you're not a very good typer. Becoming a better typer will dramatically impact a large part of what you do. You type out emails, you type out Slack messages, you type out code. You don't have to think, you don't have to look. It just happens. It's natural, right? Like that dramatically improves your life. Yet 
what is it, like one out of five people can actually type well, even in the programming field. Right. It was just kind of shocking because you're using it every day, all day. <laughs> to me, that's always one of those things where I'm like, huh, <laughs> why wouldn't you improve that one thing? Like, you, you know, it's going to be benefit. You know, I understand that you spend a lot of time thinking, but spend a lot of time typing too. Yeah. It's not just thinking. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think, uh, like in general, people that kind of use the keyboard for everything I find is like just amazing. Like, I don't know how to start learning that, but I watch them perform tasks and it's like, that's so much faster. Cause I'm like, oh, I'm just mousing around and like clicking where I want and whatever. And I always uh, give the example of uh, Zurak from the Ember community. He would like, he had no, like his keyboard was blank. It was just like all black keys. And he like would just type shit and just like, you know, control his whole computer with just the keyboard. Like he used Dvorak instead of like the normal layout. Like it seems like your mind needs another level. I don't know like how, like there should be courses around that of just how to figure that all out and like hmm. do all that. Cause it's like, if I even tried to learn Vim for like a couple of days, I would just go back to what I'm used to. Cause I'm just like, that's, that's hard. Yeah. At what point can you take the production hit to regress before you get forward kind of thing? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it would, I don't know. I don't know. I don't have an answer for that. Mm. As the person who doesn't use a mouse, types in Dvorak, customized the <laughs> keyboard layout, uses a space age keyboard that makes no sense for those that are at home. <laughs> I use a Kinesis Advantage 360. Boom. Mm. Best keyboard. Men in Black. You may have seen Men in Black. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like all of those were time investments. I remember the feeling learning them. Like I remember it. It was just the worst feeling in the universe. And it lasted for like a week. But then I was like, oh, I think there's something here. And I'm one of those people where, you know, I always beat every video game that I rented. I always tried the hardest I could. Everything I did, I just wanted to be the, like the best at, you know, Starcraft, I'm like changing scenes, trying to get like the 200 APM, just like going as fast <laughs> as I possibly can. And so it's like, that was a natural transition for me, right? Because it already kind of fit this desire that I have. Whereas I don't think everybody has that desire. They don't, they don't want to use what they do to the best of its ability. They just want to do what they're doing because, you know, it just is not important, right? Wasting X amount of time, X amount of mental overhead, X, whatever you want to call it. It's just not important, right? And that's fine. You know, it's just, it is what it is, but... I like the world where we all try to become the best we can possibly be on all angles. Yeah, that's obsessive compulsive disorder. Hey, I've got a kinesis, by the way. I got the kinesis game. Oh, you have that one. I have that too. Yeah, yeah. I have wrist issues. I think we talked about how I'm falling apart slowly but surely. <laughs> I have wrist issues too. That's why I learned Dvorak. It's for that exact reason. Yeah. Well, maybe that's my next step. I got this like mouse thingy that lets you have upright. Oh yeah, the lift. Yeah, I hear that helps. I just quit using the mouse. I found that yeah. to be way more efficient. Just cut that out altogether. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's reasonable. <laughs> get, that, get that out of my life. Yes. Okay, so what about the, the man behind the legend, the man behind the videos? I mean, what other hobbies do you have outside of making uh, crazy videos and streaming and tweeting significant amounts of uh, counterculture? I used to really love playing video games. I still do love playing video games, but honestly... For me, like the biggest thing that I do now or the thing that I spend all my time is just being whatever my kids want 
to do, right? If they're playing Roblox, I think Roblox is stupid. They haven't even put an inverted mouse. <laughs> I use inverted mouse, okay? I've been an inverted kid since Star Fox because Star Fox for the Super Nintendo screwed an entire generation of people. All of us are inverted and we didn't, you know, it's just, we're victims of Star Definitely Fox. inverted. Yeah, I know. It's victims <laughs> of Star Fox is probably where it comes from, right? It's like just the worst. And so... We're all stuck like this, and Roblox is just like, no, we're not going to add a negative one option. Mm. Right? That's all it is. It's just like throw a negative one in that. I know what it is. Checkbox, negative one. That's that. Don't do it. And so it's like I'm running around trying to figure out how to play this Ninja Legends, jumping on these platforms that my kids can't jump onto while like, oh, there's the sky. Yeah. There's the ground. Yeah. There's, okay, here we go. I'm, I'm recalibrating, <laughs> recalibrating. And all I want to do is play like Fortnite or Apex Legends with them, but instead I'm playing Roblox. And so for me, my hobby now, besides for Twitch, which is a hobby in some sense, is just whatever the kids think is fun. If they want to play soccer, I'm going to get great at soccer. If they want to play basketball, I already like playing basketball. I play in a city league, I play basketball, but it's not really a hobby because I don't do it for more than just game time. Mm. I'm going to move to South Dakota so we can get on the same team. I used to play a lot of soccer. I used to play a decent amount of basketball. Mm. Good. Yeah. Basketball is my favorite sport by far. Yeah. I don't watch any sports ball. Yeah. Right. Like I, you know, none of it. I, I, I didn't even watch the Super Bowl. Who played in the Super Bowl? I think the Eagles and the Chiefs. That's correct. But I might be wrong. Like that's how <laughs> out of touch I am with basketball or anything. I made it to the halftime show to see that weird Rihanna performance. My wife was like, "Yeah, let's watch this." And I, you didn't like it? Nah, I don't know. It was weird. It was just like kind of like a greatest hits thing, but like not as good as they were. Yeah. I, I like the <laughs> I like commercials. I don't know. I think they're kitschy and, and funny, but yeah, I'm not, a, I watch a lot of soccer. Soccer is my thing and mostly just English soccer, but I live in Phoenix and the Suns are a good team to cheer for this year. Just so you know. Okay. Yeah. And the Super Bowl was there. Oh yeah. It was here. I stayed you home. You should have watched the whole no, thing. No, we had a massive golf tournament and the Super Bowl here <laughs> in the same weekend. And I was like, not leaving the house. Oh, I forgot. I do play golf. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go on, Robbie. No, sorry. We'll come back to that. But I was just going to say, did you see that they the turf for the Super Bowl had to be wheeled out to like be in the elements for like an hour or two a day and then wheeled all the way back in? Like, why wouldn't you just make the dome open more or like... I don't think it opens that control one. Control that with the dome. No, it opens. It opens. It doesn't open enough, I think. I don't know. It was, it was silly. Anyway, yeah. golf. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I started last year. The first year ever playing golf was last year. Started off with no handicap, and then my brother-in-law was like, hey, do you want to play the member member? I joined a little local country club uh, here in South Dakota, right? It's like 200 bucks a month. It's not like it is in the Valley, right? Like I'm like, okay, I'll join that just to be able to play golf and whatever. That'd be fun. It's been a lot of fun. And so I'm like, okay, I have to get a handicap. So I got a 44 handicap, obviously not very good. Ended up shooting like a 36 during the time. So, you know, people were very upset at me, called me a sandbagger. I was like, hey, I'm not sandbagging. Okay, I'm playing. I'm just playing out here. It's not my fault I'm hitting the green every time. And so golf is like, I'm very excited for next season. I'm going to try to go a bunch with the kiddos. I think it's going to be a really fun time because I think my kids like it. Hmm. Because I have a fun little game I play with them. You might like this, uh, Charles III. Robbie, I don't know if you have any kids, but if you do, here's here's a good tip. Yeah, I have one. Is that what I do is I let them tee off. And then I'll play up till the hole. And then they have to throw it from the cart towards the hole. And wherever they land, they have five strokes to get it into the cup. And if they get it into the cup, they get an M&M. And so, you know, they're Mm. stoked. Yeah. And it gets, I mean, short game's the hardest part of golf. And so it's just like, here you go. Oh, yeah. Just practice that. Hey, if you guys want to get good at this game, let's have fun. And you won't even realize you accidentally just got better because you want to get better. Right. Like I'm giving them a reason to get better and making it fun. Plus they got a sugar high, which they all want. How old are your kids? 
Nine through two. Oh. Or nine through one and a half. Oh, through. Oh, wow. Today I learned. Yeah. I've got two. Yeah, I have a lot of kids. Six and three. Yeah, that's why you need some space. Yeah, that's why I chose South Dakota. That's reasonable. No, nah, I'm kidding. We had family here. It was good. <laughs> it was during COVID, right? Like right yeah. when COVID happened, we left California because, I mean, no matter what you thought about COVID in March of 2020, you knew it was going to be there for a while, right? Like, no, I don't think anyone was like, oh, this will be like a week. No. Right? Like, yeah. no one shuts down the world for a week, right? Like, that's just not going to happen. So I was just yeah. like, I can't sit in a house with three kids because yeah, well, at that point we had three. Yeah in California where I don't even have a backyard. Like, this is just not going to happen. Like, this is not going to happen. We're going to go nuts. And so our family already lived in South Dakota. Uh, I've always grown up in a small town, always loved a small town anyways. I was sick of being in a city. I don't care about good weather or fantastic restaurants. Mm. I just want space and fun Mm. and niceness. And so obvious win. Yeah. Went to South Dakota. Yeah. I do care about fantastic restaurants. So how much do you care? I'm in the middle of nowhere right now. So we're like uh, 30 minutes away from most fantastic restaurants right now. Okay. Outside of DC, he's where he's at. Yeah. So I'm an hour from DC. I'm in Middleburg, Virginia, kind of uh, nothing going on, but horses and cattle and stuff. Polo matches. And we're going to be not here (laughs) soon because we're too far from everything. I'm in the best of both worlds, I think. So we lived in D.C. for seven years and we moved back to Phoenix because family, kind of like you, except for like we have nine months of incredible weather and the summers are kind of hot, but get out of here or whatever else. But like the same thing, like space, like very happy that we made this move. We did do it two years before COVID because we were already like we had a young son. Yeah. No backyard. We can't do any fun stuff in the city anymore. Why wouldn't we just go get a yard? And and so we have like some outdoors things to here to do here, some walking and, and some nice weather. But so it was a little, a little bit of both here. If you get really into golf, this is a place to visit. I am going to be there in two weeks going on a little golf thing. Mm, nice. Well. Yeah, right. I think in Scottsdale. Okay. Yeah, I live down the road from there. I live in the neighborhood basically between like where downtown Phoenix is and Scottsdale Road. It's right by Camelback Mountain. It's called Arcadia. Okay. You have my email if you have any free time. I might have free time. I don't know. I have a meeting that I really want to make happen. So we'll see. No worries. I'm going to try to break the internet with an image. We'll see if it works out. <laughs> okay. I can't wait. Looking forward Ooh, to it. Yeah. Now I have to figure out what that's going to be. Yeah. <laughs> You'll learn when we all learn. Oh, by the way, I wanted to yeah. go back to one statement you made earlier talking about like the gnarly back end at Netflix. And one of the things being there was groovy. <laughs> oh, Yeah. Was that, hold on, were you trying to do an Ash impersonation? Yeah. Groovy. Really? Was it good? <laughs> no, you're, you're kinda, I feel like you're not leaning into it. You're too slow on the uptake, uh, but you're good on the on the back half. Okay. All right. So the uh, correct octave at one point, but then just, all right, I'll work on it. Okay. Yeah. Ash, one of my favorite characters. So I don't know if you know that, like eight years old, watched Evil Dead 2. Mm-hmm. That was like the greatest show ever. Yeah. And then I learned about Army of Darkness when I was like, 12 years old and I was like oh my goodness this is the greatest thing in the universe I didn't even know there was a, a third part to this never watched Evil Dead 1 oh I don't know never I've never seen it or the remake or any of them same level of camp and then there was a video game at some point like on PlayStation or something yeah. I did play Dreamcast Dreamcast okay there you go I beat through it it was mm-hmm. great I've got an emulator for everything now forgot about Dreamcast yeah, yeah. alright so uh, Groovy so during the beginnings of Netflix Somebody, you know, again, coddling is like the worst thing you can do to developers. And one of the things they did was, you know, a bunch of JavaScript devs couldn't write Java. So we're going to give them Groovy. Well, Groovy is just really like a, just a worse form of Java. That's all it is. is You get all, you can write Java, 
but you can also write horrible syntax at the same time. And then somebody thought, you know, people love that RxJS business, but it's not available in Groovy, so we're gonna write our own. <laughs> and somebody wrote their own, so we had this just like, just so many headaches, and I did uh, the great Groovy upgrade. I upgraded us to 2.3.6, so I had to align every backend team, I had to align every front-end team, and get this thing released, and it was a huge headache, and there was like PlayStations in Brazil that were still not updated, that were pegged to these old endpoints. So I had to go through like 100 separate endpoints and patch code mm. to make it to work <laughs> because there was like 15 people still using it. And so it was just, it, I mean, I spent weeks. I think I ended up calling it, uh, hold on, I, I'm on my work computer. Let's see, hold on, let's see if I can actually find the name of this. <laughs> A great groovy upgrade. Well, I love to hear that Netflix is committed to their members. We are committed. Yeah. The right now, like especially right now with the whole like upgrade of not being able to use Netflix wherever you go and there's this whole location business and all these kind of things. Mm. The thing is is you're right. It's definitely a change. It's a little bit different. It is what it is, but Netflix is just like a decade behind Spotify. Right. All these people complaining about like I can't share an account with my wife right now on Spotify because it's right. just too damn complicated. At least I can share it with Netflix and her like, you know, like it works. I can yeah. make it happen. And so it's like, is it terrible? Uh, it's just inconvenient. I, you know, I wish things were easier. I don't know. I don't like my parents that much anyway. So, <laughs> oh, sorry, you can't use it. Not my fault. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it can yeah. Inadvertently kick them off. Yeah. I do use my dad's. So uh, I'm part of the problem here. <laughs> nice. All right. So let's see. Uh, right now, I'm actually looking at some of these. So it turns out like PlayStation 3.1, 2011, 2012, 2012.2 builds were all broken. Mm. Ridley. I don't even remember what Ridley or Vita browser was. I think those might have been like maybe Wii U builds. Mm. I had to go through so many things, but it's called the Great Groovy Upgrade in the Sky with Diamonds, named after a Beatles song. I got to name it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So of course, then I made it just the world's largest initialism. So it was like Great Groovy Upgrade. So G-G-U-I-S-W-D. <laughs> so people are like, what is that? I'm like, oh, Great Groovy Upgrade in the Sky with Diamonds. Of course, everybody knows that. Mm. <laughs> Although you know that was just an acronym for LLSD, right? Loosing the Sky with Diamonds. It was also one of the first songs to have a breakdown. Mm. It was like an inverse breakdown, right? It's nice and slow, and then it went fast for the chorus. Yeah, that's true. Hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't have realized that that was the first, but definitely. Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band was one of the first, like, it was like one of the very first albums to really show that in a modern sense. Obviously, we're not talking about classical music where people had actual talent, <laughs> but like during like the rock phase where you just throw four instruments together, yeah. one being a voice, like that was like a really technically hard thing to do back then it was really it was amazing yeah they used a lot of mixing and like weird equipment tricks and stuff too so yeah it was like a really really amazing thing sorry I, that was a weird thing <laughs> that i used to be into as well yeah well i'm, I'm hoping it's because you finished the uh the ak-47 of bourbon i'm almost done with it i can switch <laughs> to the next one though i don't want to get too hammered because i still got that uh well that wife time we're at time here so we need to to end here soon so oh we are yeah yeah let's try the other one can we try the other one well the other one is just for you to have whenever We're, we don't need to have it right now that was our barrel pick yeah that's a special one for you oh yeah well thank you so we yeah like a year ago we did yeah. a barrel pick and branded it with the podcast and yada 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 and it's just like one of our faves nice okay sycamore spirit rye sagamore yeah 
Oh, Sagamore. Sorry. Yeah, there's no Y in there. You're right. Yeah. Or C. <laughs> yeah, I just, I'm a good reader. <laughs> well, I genuinely appreciate being on this. I hope that uh, this is what you guys wanted to get out of it. I, you know, I had a fun time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, before we end, is there anything else you want to plug or anything we didn't cover? No. Okay. Oh, yeah. Fair enough. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you liked it, please subscribe. Leave us some ratings and reviews. We appreciate it. And we will catch you next time. Thanks for listening to Whiskey Web and Whatnot. This podcast is brought to you by ShipShape and produced by Podcast Royale. If you like this episode, consider sharing it with a friend or two and leave us a rating, maybe a review, as long as it's good. You can subscribe to future episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more info about ShipShape and this show, check out our website at shipshape.io.